Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's a black hardcover. I'm reading out the Christian Standard Bible. Turn to page 860 in the pew Bible, and if you turn there, um, you will... See, the big number seven, that's the chapter number, and the small numbers, that's the verse numbers. After we read scripture and I pray, I'm going to ask Ross and Royce on both sides, if you guys could grab some of the blank sheets in case anyone wants to take notes, and you guys could pass those out after we pray. Okay, so let's hear God's word from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. This is the conclusion to, our ser- to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, that doesn't produce good fruit, is cut down And thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? And do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now what we just asked, that your word would dwell richly among us, that you'd cause us to meditate on your word in such a way that our roots go deep into the streams of living water and fruit comes up in our lives, good fruit for your glory. Lord Jesus, you said apart from you, we can do nothing. If your words don't abide in us and if we don't abide in you, then we can do nothing. We can't preach well, we can't hear well, 
and we will just be like the man who builds his house on the sand. So, so Lord, we're asking that you would save us from being the man who builds his house on the sand and cause us to hear your words and act on them for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This passage is one of the scariest passages for my soul. Verses 20 and 21, or 21 and 22, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, those who prophesy in his name and cast out demons in his name and do many miracles in his name. Fruitful ministry, it seems. Gospel ministry. And yet, and yet, Jesus says, I don't know you. Depart from me. I think I'm going to heaven and I end up going to hell instead. That's the worst rude awakening. I'd rather be awakened now while I have time to adjust, while I have time to repent and believe, than to think I'm saved the whole time and then stand before Christ the judge and find out that I'm actually damned. We want to know we're saved, right? Christians want to know that they are Christian. We not only want to go to the new earth, we want to know that we're going there. We want to help others know that as well. And the struggle of assurance of salvation, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? That is a common struggle. It is common to man. It is common to woman. It is common to professing Christians. If you ever struggle with assurance, you are not alone. Every member of our church at different seasons of their lives, in different times, struggle with whether they're really Christian. And the reason why we don't like this struggle is because it grips us with fear. A, a, a good fear. I'm scared of hell. <laughs> I'm scared of God's judgment. I am scared of eternally, consciously being crushed under God's wrath forever and ever and ever for every single sin. Being righteously punished and meted out on me for what I've done in this life. That's a scary thought. That's a terrifying thought. There isn't anything scarier than being under God's Almighty wrath. So the fear comes, well, what if I'm self-deceived? There are pastors who are self-deceived. What if I'm self-deceived? What if you're self-deceived? Paul commands us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Unless you fail to meet the test, you should, you should know you're a Christian. Will the demons use our fear to cripple us? Or will Christ see us through our battles with doubt and help us to examine our faith? Well, Christ wants to help us today from this passage in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 12, all the way to verse 29. Here's the main goal. The brothers already passed out some um, papers. Does anyone else need paper? Everyone's okay? All right. If you need paper, you can just go back to the back foyer and grab one. Here's the main goal. Enter through the narrow gate or else... Going piggyback on the backstory, or else your collapse will be great. Enter through the narrow gate, or else your collapse will be great. That's the main command in this passage. There's actually three commands in this passage. There's do unto others as you would have them do unto you, enter through the narrow gate, and be on your guard against false prophets. But I think the main command of, of these verses is verse 13. So look at verse 13 in your Bible. Enter through the narrow gate. Why? There's two reasons here why you should enter through the narrow gate. 
reason. Number one, actually it's one reason in two different ways, the negative and positive. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to what? Destruction. And there are many who go through it. There's a first reason. A second reason or the backside reason, the flip side is verse 14. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. So the call here is to enter through a narrow gate. And the narrow gate, what it means by narrow and not wide is it's narrow, it's constricted, it's uncomfortable, it's convenient, it's painful to get through this gate. It's squeezing through a very tight hole, a tight entrance where you get scratched and scraped and hurt getting through the gate. We could even say squeeze yourself, enter by squeezing yourself through the narrow gate so that you might enter into life as opposed to going through the broad gate, the wide gate. It's comfortable. You can waltz right in. You can dance. You could spin around swinging your arms. There's space for everyone. No, no, nothing constricting about that gate. Christ is saying, choose the hard gate. Choose the narrow gate. Choose the uncomfortable gate. Choose the painful gate. The one that everyone is looking at really quickly and just looking the other way. Not to give it a second thought. Christ is saying, give it a second thought. He's saying, more than give it a second thought, go through that gate. And why, according to verse 13? For the wide gate... It's wide and comfortable, and the road is broad. Again, it's comfortable, but what does it lead to? Destruction. So the first reason why you should go through the narrow gate is so that you're not destroyed. So that God doesn't destroy you for your sins. You know, the majority isn't always right. I know we live in a republic that practices, uh, that, that organizes itself and makes decisions democratically. But the majority isn't always right. In this case, the majority is dead wrong. They're destructively wrong. The majority, according to the Bible, is deceived by Satan, the dragon, and his beasts. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 17. Listen to Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11. John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Looked like a lamb, looked like Jesus, but it was a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth, that's the majority, to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted, the second beast was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, here's the wide, the many, it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. Those on the wide road, those going through the broad gate, are deceived by Satan and by his two beasts. And Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Wake up. And by the way, he's not speaking only to those who are rejecting him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, 
this whole sermon is to the crowds. He sees crowds and he went up to the mountain and says, he sat there and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He began to teach his disciples, not just the 12, those who are following him, those who are interested in Jesus, the crowd who follows Jesus. Even among that majority, they're on the broad, they're on the, 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 the wide way, going through the broad gate, being deceived by Satan. So why should you go through the narrow gate? The second reason is in verse 14. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to what? What does it lead to? Destruction? Life. It leads to life. Now I told you already this gate is narrow, uncomfortable, pressurized, inconvenient, and painful. It demands that you would deny yourself. It demands strict obedience. Look at Matthew 5 verse 19. Or listen to Matthew 5, 19. You're already in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. It says this. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So those who relax, those who repeal, those who abolish, those who render obsolete, those who fudge on God's commands. Is it easy to fudge on God's commands? Yes. It is difficult to keep God's commands as he commanded it without your editing. Without your excuse making, without your modifications, it's hard to say, I will obey Jesus in all that he commands without my modifications of it. No fine prints. Blank check, sign my name, here it is, Jesus. Whatever you want to do with it, I'm yours. Whatever you say, I'll follow. That's hard. That's narrow. It takes denying yourself. It even takes, if we're just taking the Sermon on the Mount as a description of what this narrow gate might be like, in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, we talked about this two weeks ago. This is hard. It takes us being open to people correcting us. Remember we talked about that two weeks ago? How we get defensive and proud and arrogant when someone else is going to tell us we're wrong, whether it's our family members or our friends, even our close loyal friends or our church family. How we need to be open to correction. That's hard. But that's the narrow gate. If you're going to walk through this narrow gate, you need to be correctable. I need to be correctable. And so Jesus says, enter through this narrow, restrictive gate. Now here's one application for our church. The gate to church membership should be similar to the gate to the kingdom. Now the church is not the kingdom. The church is, what we do as church members in the membership of this church is we are affirming as a church that we believe that this person, as best we can tell, is a gospel citizen. So we preach the gospel. We see if they're willing to actually bow down to all Christ's commands. Not that they're going to do it perfectly, but they're willing to do it. That they've actually given up their independence to say, I'm going to be dependent on Christ. If we can discern that in a person, and they're willing to follow Christ in the fellowship of this church, I will recommend them to the church for church membership, or the pastors will recommend them to the church. But the church finally decides whether someone should be a member or not. So how high or low should we have the bar? It should be very low in the sense that it's not by works. It's just trusting in Christ. But how do you know when someone's trusting in Christ? Are they willing to squeeze through the narrow gate? Are they willing to say, in all of their struggles with sin and imperfections and selfishness, are they willing to say, I will follow Jesus no matter what? And if I find my sin in my life, I will repent and I will keep trusting in Jesus. And I will hold myself accountable to this church. And I want this church to hold me accountable. And I will work with this church to hold other people accountable. To agree to that, to a church that gets in your business sometimes, 
right? We're a weird church. Do you realize that? You might not realize that. Some, I remember one of the people who got saved in our church and, and started going to another church and said, what, what is our church about? This is weird. Why is no church, not that there aren't any other churches, but why don't churches hold people accountable? If a member, if, a, if someone says, I want to follow Jesus and join this church, and we tell them what it means to follow Jesus, and they say, I'm down, then we say, okay, we'll affirm you as a, as a gospel citizen. But it's important for us as a church to make sure that we don't broaden the gate. Don't make it narrower than it is. You have to give this much money to the church. No, we're not going to do that. It's not what the Bible says. We don't want to make it more narrow, but at the same time, we don't want to make it broader than what the Bible says either. We want to say to everyone who wants to be a Christian, enter the narrow gate. Now, this leads to different destinies. One is destruction, one is life. Jesus describes these destinies in Matthew 25. Listen to verse 34. It says this. The king will say to those on the right on the final judgment, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So if you want life, you get the kingdom of God. What does destruction mean, though? Listen to Matthew 25, 46. Those who are away from Jesus, they will go away into, listen to this, Matthew 25, 46. They will go away into eternal or everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Where does the broad gate lead? Where does the wide way lead? To destruction. Not just temporary destruction, eternal punishment. Or as Paul says, condemnation. Damnation under the wrath of God for sins. If you go through the broad gate and you walk down the wide way, you will end up in the lake of fire. Where there's everlasting torment prepared for Satan and his angels. And all of those who are apart from Jesus will also Go there. So Jesus says, don't walk that way. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, is the gate before the road? Now, how do you picture this in your mind? There's a debate here. Is the gate before the road? Or is the gate synonymous with the road? Or is the gate at the end of the road? So you take the, you take the, 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 the difficult road and then you end up at the gate and then you go through the narrow gate? Or is the gate and the road just two ways of saying the same thing? Or... Is the gate in the beginning, and you squeeze through the gate, and then you walk the difficult road into the kingdom. All right? So you know the three options? Option number one, gate is at the end of the journey. How many of you say that? All right? The gate is the journey, is the road. How many of you say that? Okay, a few more. How many of you say the gate is at the beginning of the journey? Uh, I think that's the majority. All right. Well, um, there, it is debated even among um, good New Testament scholars. But I think, agreeing with D.A. Carson, I do think it's at the beginning of the road. Now, why do I say that? I think, well, I'm saying that because Matthew 5, 3 and Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So you have to be poor in spirit. That's kind of how you become a Christian, by admitting your poverty of spirit, your bankruptcy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So you're mourning over your sin. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, deciding on being a peacemaker, being persecuted. And then Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus is saying, um, get surpassing righteousness. So I think, okay, it's debatable. So if you think the other two, there, there's, good, there's good reasons for that too. I think, though, it's at the beginning of the Christian life. I think this is kind of the call to conversion. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's how you become a Christian. And when you say, I repent from my sins... I will turn from my sins and self-centeredness and my own righteousness and trust in Jesus. 
that is entering through the narrow gate because you have to die to yourself initially there to squeeze through. And when you do that, Jesus calls you then to a life of suffering, doesn't he? Didn't he say in Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are you when you are persecuted and when people say all kinds of evil against you? For great is your reward in heaven, for yours is the kingdom of God. But you have to be persecuted because he says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. So if you follow Jesus, then you become a peacemaker. Well, guess what you see all around you? You see the breakdown of what? Peace. So what does that mean for you? It pushes you to get involved. And so, um, so you, 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 you get you start to walk that difficult path of following Jesus and being a peacemaker. So the way you enter, I, I would say that entering is the beginning of the Christian life, and you need to enter through that narrow gate by repenting from your sins and trusting in Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, I need to explain this to you briefly because you need to understand the gospel. Here's the gospel message. Here's the main message of Christianity. So if you're not a Christian, you're not sure you're a Christian, you don't know what the main message of Christianity is, listen up. Here's the main message. God created you in his image. He created all humans in his image to know and enjoy God forever. But here's the problem. We didn't want to enjoy God. We wanted to use God to enjoy other things. Rather than using the other things to enjoy God, God wants you to enjoy this world. He wants you to enjoy your relationships. But he wants you to use those relationships to ultimately enjoy him as your ultimate treasure. But we flipped it. We wanted to use God as our butler to get to our real treasure, which wasn't him. We rejected God as our ultimate treasure. And that's what the Bible calls sin. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. And the penalty or the wages of sin is death, eternal death. So this is the problem. God made us to enjoy him. We rebelled, and therefore we deserve condemnation. Every single person in this room, every single person on this globe deserves condemnation for their sins. That's the bad news. Here's the good news and the main message of Christianity. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the perfect life you should have lived, to die on the cross for your sins, and to rise from the dead. That's the gospel. God the Father sent the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life you should have lived, to die on the cross in your place for your sins, and to rise from the dead, so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you would be forgiven and saved. But that's the squeezing through the narrow gate right there. Say that last part. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. It's free. All you got to do is enter through a narrow gate. All you have to do is let go of your sins and repent and trust in Jesus. It's free and it's hard. There's um, a, 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 an illustration John Piper uses in the book Future Grace where he says um, dropping sin is as easy, and he's talking about this monkey who has a, a nut in his hand, it's as easy as dropping a nut. And what he means by that is there's a, a monkey where um, they, they put a nut in a jar, and he could, he could get his hand through, but he has to squeeze it in. And once he gets it, he grabs the nut. And he wants to get his hand out, but he can't because he's holding the nut in his fist. And he refuses to let go of the nut. So it's like it's so hard to get my hand out. It is so hard if you won't let go of your idol of what you're treasuring in this world that's not God, of your sin. If you won't let go of that, it's super hard to get to heaven. But if you'll just let go of your sin, drop it, and come to Jesus, then you could squeeze your hand out. That's the narrow gate. The difficulty is not in knowing and trusting Jesus. The difficulty is in our love for our sin. 
and our own religion and our own righteousness. That's what makes it difficult. And so Jesus is inviting you, if you're not a Christian this morning, he's inviting you to trust in him and turn from your sin and have eternal life. You don't have to be destroyed if you'll trust in Jesus. All right. So the second part of the sermon, that's the main command, verses 13 and 14. The second part of the sermon is going to cover the rest. And here's what I want to do for the rest of the sermon. There are three ways of testing yourself to know whether you're saved. There are three ways of testing yourself to know whether you have walked through the narrow gate and whether you're on the difficult road or not. Three ways, okay? Three ways to know that you're, you've passed through the narrow gate and you're on the difficult road to life. I'll give you the three up front and then we'll go through them one at a time. You know that you have passed through the narrow gate and you're on the difficult road by, number one, discerning the command. Number two, the command of God. Number two, discerning your leaders. And number three, discerning your profession. Okay? By discerning the command of God, the command of Christ. Secondly, by discerning your leaders, your spiritual leaders. And thirdly, by discerning your profession. We'll look at those one at a time. And those are the three ways we will know, those are three ways we can know whether we have passed through the narrow gate and are on the, the, the difficult way to life. Number one. Enter by discerning the command. What is the command? Look at verse 12. It's just one verse. Chapter 7, verse 12 of Matthew. It says this. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, what's the command here? Do what? Do also what? The same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so here's the command. What you want others to do to you, do the same for them. You understand the command? We call this the what rule? The golden rule, right? This is the golden rule that, that you would do to others what you would want them to do to yourself. Okay? Um, in verse 12, it says that this is the law and the prophets. This is the reason why we should do it, for this is the law and the prophets. So the first reason why we should keep this command is because it's the law and the prophets. It summarizes the Old Testament. The law and the prophets stands for the Old Testament. It's a powerful one-sentence rule that helps us to not have to worry about all of the commands of the Bible. We should worry about them, but not to try to memorize them all. If you keep this one golden rule, it really helps you to obey all of what the law and the prophets are commanding you. It gives you the basic ethical message that the Bible demands of you. The golden rule. That's the first reason why you should do it. It's the summary of the law and the prophets. The second reason is look at verse 12 again. What's the very first word in verse 12? Therefore, that's giving you a reason from before. Why should you keep the golden rule? The answer is because, now it's not the paragraph before, because God answers your prayer, therefore keep the golden rule. It's not even all of chapter 7, judge correctly and God answers your pray for prayer, therefore keep the golden rule. It's actually the whole sermon from chapter 517 all the way to 711. So 517 through 20, Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, I have come to what? Fulfill the law. And then he says, then he says to you, Keep the law and the prophets, keep it very closely, and unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter. And so Jesus is saying, because of all that I taught you, therefore keep the golden rule as a summary. What did Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount? Let's just review. In chapter 5, he says, don't just obey externally, like don't murder, but obey internally. Don't hate people. Don't just obey externally, don't commit adultery. Don't even lust. 
Don't only keep your promises, keep your word all the time. Don't only love your neighbor and love your friends, love your, your enemies. Love your enemies. Don't only stay faithful in your marriage, hate divorce. Right? He, he just goes over these over and over again, telling you about the internal and not just the external. And then he says, when you pray and when you fast, don't do it. Don't do it for showing off to other people. Do it for whose who's eye, whose attention? God's, and he'll reward you. And then he's also saying, seek first the kingdom of God, live for eternity, don't live for the earth now. And then he says in chapter 7, correct humbly and correctly. And then pray persistently. And because this is the summary of the law and the prophets, therefore, you, you want to know how it's all summed up? Do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. Now notice, the golden rule, Jesus is not the first one to do the golden rule. People have said the golden rule before. But it's almost always said in the negative. Don't do unto others what you would have them not do unto you. That's okay. But you know, if you only stated the negative, what's wrong with that? Why is Jesus is better? Because he's Jesus. That's one reason. But, but really, like, why is Jesus' command better? Why is the positive better? Because what? It takes initiative. To not do what you wouldn't have others to do to you, you just leave everyone alone, right? You have a license to be passive. It's not my business. It's not my responsibility. I am not my brother's keeper. I don't have to make peace. I see that there's a breakdown of peace there, but I don't have to be a peacemaker. But if you would do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and you see a breakdown of peace there, and you were, if you were in a situation of a breakdown of peace, would you want someone to help you make peace? If that's true, then you would do the same. This command, it pushes you into initiative, into action, into engagement. You cannot passively stand by with this golden rule. This golden rule, general, it gives you a general understanding of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. I mean, in the new earth, we're always going to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. What if, what if the world was like this today? What if America, we just prayed a lot for America today. What if America was like this today, where everyone did to others what they would have them do unto us? What would our country be like? What would our city be like? Wouldn't it be an amazing place to live? I mean, it is in some ways. There's blessings. But wouldn't it be an amazing place to live if everyone did to others what they would have them do unto themselves? What if the church did this? Let's not even talk about the world. Let's talk about the church. What if, the, what if your families and what if the church lived this way? Isn't this a sweet command of harmony and peace or what the Bible even calls shalom? This is a sweet, sweet command. It summarizes everything that God wants us to do. Now here's, a, here's kind of the catch to this and then we'll move on to the next reason, next way. The golden rule is not only how you should act with each other, it also, it also applies in the way you act with God. You get that? Treat God the way you would want to be treated if you were God. Now, you're not God, but if you were, treat God the way you would want to be treated. So, for example, when God tells you to obey, don't just obey externally. Is that what God would want? Is that, is that what you would want? No, you'd want internal obedience. What about... Um, your, your um, sexual purity in marriage, did God just want you to keep it on the outside or would God want you to keep it on the inside? Well, do the same. What about keeping your word, trusting God for provision to provide your needs? Would you want to be trusted if you were a God who was, who was providing needs? Then trust God with your needs. Would you want people to look forward to, to their eternity with you? 
Well, then look forward to your eternity with God. Would you want to be respected as the judge and commissioner of all commands? Then respect God as the judge and the commissioner and stop being the judge yourself. Would you want, if you were God, would you want others to trust you as good and enthusiastic and wise and loving in the way you answer prayers? Would you want people to persist in praying to you as you're trying to teach them lessons and provide for their needs? Well, then you persist in prayer to who? To God. The golden rule is sweet, it's good and wise because it guides our whole life. Not just with each other, but even in our relationship with God. So brothers and sisters, memorize this command and, and do it this week. Church family, let's obey this command as a key to our church health. Let's do this in our members meetings, in our discussions, in our debates. If you're not a Christian, have you ever broke this command? Just say yes. All of us have. Even Christians. Christians, have you broke this command? Yes. If you're not a Christian, have you broke this command? Yes. So come to God for forgiveness. Come to Jesus. Parents, parents, what would you want your parent to do for, to you if you were in your child's rebellious predicament? Or when your child spills milk on the table? I'm like, oh, like uh, the, the, the sinful PJ arises, you know. What would I want my parent to do for me if I accidentally spilled milk and it was an honest accident? Parents, do to your children as you would have them do unto you. If you're a coworker, what if you were the boss? How would you want to treat your employees? If you were an employee and you had people working under you, how would you want them to be treated? How would you, you know, apply the golden rule there? If you're discouraged, share your burden because others want to bear it. And you'd want them to share it with you if you could bear theirs. If you're stumbling or stubborn in your sin, be open to correction. Invite correction. If you're in sin right now and you're hiding sin, invite correction in your life. Because that's what you would want others to do to you. If you're strong, bear each other's burdens. This is a sweet command. All right, so the first way to enter through the kingdom gate or the narrow gate is by discerning God's command. Second reason, or second way. Let's go to verses 15 and 20. Second way to enter through the narrow gate. Enter by discerning your leaders. Enter by discerning your leaders. Look at verse 15, Matthew 7, verse 15. It says this. You guys there? Matthew 7, 15. Be on your guard against who? False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. But inwardly are ravaging wolves. There's the command. Beware, be aware, discern leaders. Not every prophet is a good prophet. Not every pastor is a true pastor. Not every church leader is a true church leader. Beware of false church leaders. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false leaders. They are coming around in sheep's clothing, but they're really what? They're really wolves. They're really wolves. That's what they are. And so Jesus is telling you to identify them. Now, we don't know who the false prophets are. Are they the Sadducees? Are they the Pharisees? They might be in this situation, but let's make it a general principle here because Jesus is applying it to us today. Beware of false teachers. When did false teaching start? Bible question. When did false teaching start? In the Garden of Eden. When Satan came to Eve and said, did God really say? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this fruit? False teaching starts all the way back with our first parents. False teaching has been here. It will be here. False teachers have been here. They will always be here. You need to, get, you need to have your thinking cap on and discern false teachers until Christ comes again. So how do we discern false teachers? 
Let me give you three ways of discerning false teachers here. Number one, by checking their fruit. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, verse 16 says this. You'll recognize them by their what? Their fruit. And look at verse 20. What does it say again there in verse uh, 20? So you'll recognize them by their, by their fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Now, um, You'll recognize them by their fruit. Let's look at verse. So, so we, we need to check their fruit. That's check the outcome of their lives. That's, that's the first way you'll know a false teacher. Check the fruit of their lives. So understand, but you, the first way you do it is by checking for fruit. Secondly, the way you discern false teachers is by understanding that the root always leads to the fruit. Okay, that's verses 16 and, through 18. The root always leads to the fruit. Look at verse 16 again, the second half of verse 16. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Yes or no? No. Okay, so here is, now we don't live in an agrarian society, culture, so I didn't even know what this was. I had to look it up myself, and I thought, if I don't know what this is, and I study the Bible all the time, most people here won't know what this is. So, do you see what these are? Anyone know what these are? They are blackberries on um, on buckthorn. Now, they could be mistaken for, oh, you can't see that. That's not cool. There's a bundle of them there. If you imagine them in a, in a bigger bundle, they actually look like grapes. From far away, they can look like grapes. Okay, and then, and then the second one is what? Um, in verse 16. Uh, hold on, I lost my place here. Figs from thistles. So here's the next one. Can you guys see that? No? Ben, you get the light just for this, just real quick. Okay, figs from thistles. Now, these, up close, you could tell the difference. But from far away, if you're hungry, and you see a, a fig here as it's sprouting on the left, and a thistle, a, a flower from a thistle on the right, they could look similar from far away. But if you went up close and you checked the fruit, you would realize that the root, even though you can't see the root, that's not a fig tree. That's a thistle. Or that's not a grapevine or a blueberry bush. That is a buckthorn bush. You, you could see it up close, but you can't tell from afar. Okay, thank you, brother. So the point here is you need to understand that the root, that the root leads to the fruit. Now, how do you know about, going back to this blueberry one, how do you know that these are these blackberries, how do you know that they're bad? Well, you could taste them, but here's the problem if you taste these black blackberry thorn, uh, buck, buck thorn berries. They are, they, the, the, the berries, the roots, and the bark are all toxic. So they say, keep this away from children. The berries cause severe cramping and diarrhea in humans. Keep small children out of areas where buckthorn berries fall, as the blue blackberries may be mistaken for blueberries and accidentally eaten. So they tell you to, to get rid of these because children might just grab them and eat them, and they are toxic. But on the outside, from afar, they look pretty good. It's the same thing with false teachers. False prophets 
teach. They look good. They sound good. They sound biblical. It sounds like they love the word. They sing songs passionately to God. They're part of a church that seems to have a confession of faith that preaches the gospel. But all the while, they are false prophets. When you get up close and you look at them, you look and examine their fruit, you can tell that the root is bad. The root always leads to the fruit. So false prophets will eventually teach false doctrine, false ethics, either legalism, extra rules that the Bible doesn't have, or license. They'll say, don't keep some of the rules that the Bible tells you to keep. Or the pastor might teach the right gospel, right ethics, but live like a hypocrite in his own life. He doesn't actually practice what he preaches. He doesn't repent from sin the way he tells people to repent from sin. He doesn't tell people to cling to Christ for dear life the way he preaches that you should cling to Christ for dear life. And so he's a hypocrite, even though his doctrine and ethics teaching-wise is correct. You'll know them by their fruit, but you have to get up close. You have to listen to their doctrine to find out whether they're teaching accurately. You need to actually get to know them personally to know their lives to see whether they are false prophets or true leaders and teachers. Now, what are the bad fruit and the good fruit? You guys are familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Listen to this passage from Paul in Galatians 5. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Here's the works of the flesh. Here's the bad fruit, some bad fruit. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have, here's the narrow gate. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They've repented from their sins, and they'll keep repenting from their sins all the way until they die. They have entered through the narrow gate. They have crucified their flesh and their passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So false prophets will neither acknowledge or teach the narrow way. Have you ever heard of prosperity gospel teachers? People who talk about Jesus and they say life is going to be easy if you trust in Jesus. Once you trust in Jesus, that's the hard part. It's all smooth sailing from here. That's a lie. That's a satanic lie. And the biggest churches with the most money and the most social impact seem to be the ones that have the lies. But we're not surprised. Why? Because broad is the gate and, and wide is the way that leads to what? Destruction. A false prophet won't tell you that you have to trust in Jesus and keep trusting in Jesus and suffer for his name. Through many tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom of God. So false prophets either don't teach that, or two, false prophets might teach the right doctrine. But here's where I've seen it, and here's my danger for my own life, which is why I'm grateful for our church, and you could keep me accountable if you like here. Actually, you need to. But, but teachers who teach the right doctrine and ethics, they don't submit themselves, the false ones, they don't truly submit themselves under God's kingdom authority in the church. And a true prophet, pastor, teacher, elder, overseer, will truly submit himself to the, to the kingdom authority of the local church. That's how you could sniff out a false teacher from a true one. So don't trust prosperity teachers or those who minimize the gospel or those who don't 
allow themselves to be held accountable to the authority of the church. Test teachers, test pastors, and be a healthy church member. In this church, if you're a member in this church, you're responsible to hold every member accountable. You're responsible to hold every leader accountable. Don't fall short of that responsibility. Don't assume teachers and pastors don't need to be held accountable. They do. To the same gospel standard, call to faith and repentance that we hold everyone to. All right, now, one more reason or one more way to, to discern false teachers is by understanding the consequence for false teachers. Look at verse 19. Last verse here on this one. Verse 19. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. Now, that's symbolic, but what does that probably refer to? The lake of fire, hell. So you need to understand that there are false prophets. You need to discern them. You need to hold them accountable, and you need to warn them because they will go to hell. So what's the application for us? As Christians all across the world, the, the universal church, know the gospel and test all teachers. If you're not a Christian, here's my question for you. Who are you following? Who are you trusting? Who is your leader? Who is your prophet that you follow? And you say, well, you know, PJ, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I actually don't have a prophet. I just kind of follow whatever I think is right. Who's your prophet? I just follow whoever I think is right. Who became your prophet? You did. Are you a false prophet? Have you, do you trust yourself? Let me just ask you a question. If you trust yourself, you're like, yeah, PJ, I trust myself. Have you ever been wrong? And what if, but you could also say, well, have I ever been right? Okay, yeah, you've been right too. But what if you're wrong about God and Jesus? What if you're wrong? Are you going to trust yourself as your prophet of your life? Beware of false prophets. Even be aware of yourself. Go to God in scripture. Praise God that he gives us a Bible. He gives us his son. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And he gives us his church family to gospelize each other with the word so that we don't follow false prophets, false teachers, and we don't lead ourselves astray. Enter through the kingdom gate or else your collapse will be great. You enter by discerning the command, the golden rule. And keeping that, you enter by discerning your leaders. And lastly, you enter by discerning your profession. Last, path, last point, verses 21 to 29. The scary one, enter by discerning your profession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do, does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus just gave us there the one who enters. So check your claim. If you're going to discern your profession, you need to check your claim and you need to check your hearing. First, let's talk about checking your claim. Verses 21 and 23, and then we'll talk about checking your hearing. But first, check your claim. Who goes to heaven? Who enters the kingdom of heaven according to verse 21? Not every, does everyone who say, says, Lord, Lord, do they enter the kingdom? No. Who does, though, in verse 21? Those who do what? Those who do practice the will of my Father in heaven. The one who enters is the one who obeys Jesus. The one who's denied is in verses 22 and 23. You would think, okay, the one who obeys Jesus is the one who enters. So the one who doesn't enter is the one who, what? Disobeys the Father. But that's not what it says. Look at verse 22. The one who is denied entrance, in verse 22 it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we what? Prophesy in your name? Didn't we what? Drive out demons in your name? And didn't we? Do many miracles, and what does it say three times? In your 
name, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we prophesy. In the name of Jesus, we'll, we'll teach the Bible. In the name of Jesus, we'll cast out demons. We will fight sin and the sin that captivates people. We'll actually rebuke people, give them biblical teaching so that they can escape the snare of the devil. In the name of Jesus, we'll do that. And in the name of Jesus, we'll do miracles and signs and wonders. Isn't that doing things? Isn't that doing the will of the Father? Doesn't God want us to speak God's word and prophecy in that regard? Doesn't God want us to, to fight against demonic influence in people's lives? Sure he does. So they're doing the will of the Father too. What does Jesus say? Verse 23, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So I'm left here scratching my head thinking, wait, they're doing the will of the Father, but they're not in. You don't know them, Jesus. What are they not doing that's the will of the Father if they're doing these three things, which is the will of the Father? The Lord here is showing us what true profession looks like, what a true claim to following Jesus looks like. We might be able to deceive others, but we can't deceive the Lord. We could even deceive ourselves. In other words, it's not just, and if we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount as one, as, as, a, as, a, as the key difference between the two. I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Were people praying? Even false people, were they praying? Yeah, they're praying publicly. Were they, um, were they not, were they keeping away from adultery? Yes, they were. Were they not murdering people? Yes, they were. Were they keeping their oaths, their official big time oaths? Yes, they were. Were they loving their friends and neighbors? Yes, they were. Were they praying? Yes, they were. Were they giving to the temple? Yes, they were. Were they praying? Yeah, they were. So they're doing the will of God, but Jesus taught us that the will is actually deeper than that, right? It's internal, not only external. It's not just, it's not just collecting treasures in heaven, but your whole treasure being heaven. It's not just uh, praying, but praying persistently to a father who loves you and knows you. In other words, Doing the will of the Father is not only external, it's internal. And we can be tricked by the externals of our lives and ministries. Didn't Judas cast out demons? Didn't Judas prophesy? Didn't Judas do miracles? He did. Didn't Judas say he loved Jesus? Didn't he call him Lord? And where is he today? In hell. According to scripture, he's in hell. And if he's in hell for that, we can deceive ourselves as well. So we need to check ourselves, check our claim. Are we doing the Father's will? Are we obeying the Lord, not just on the outside, but on the inside? Now, I need to ask another question here theologically just before we, we um, get to this last, last section. Is Jesus saying that you have to do God's will as the basis of your salvation? I see you saying no. Yes or no? No, he's not, okay? You're not saved on the basis of your works. You can't earn your salvation. Here's a second question. Is Jesus requiring, is Jesus requiring personal obedience even internally um, for your salvation? Not as the basis, but is he requiring it as part of your salvation? That's a hard one, right? I can understand the hesitation, but the answer is yes. Let me tell you why. Right, let me give you an illustration here. So it's not the basis. Your works are not the basis of your salvation. The basis is Christ's life, death, and resurrection for you, right? But he does require that you follow Jesus, that you trust in Jesus. And that's going to show itself in your life. But that's not the payment for your salvation. Let me give you an example. 
It's like saying, you need to get, um, okay, I bought last night um, tickets for April 25th for the Avengers Endgame movie. You need tickets to get in. So I bought tickets last night for this big movie event that's coming up. You need a ticket to get in to the movie theater, right? Or let's just say there's a big event. Let's say it's bigger than this movie. Let's say it's a ticket that costs a billion dollars to get into this huge event, this huge celebration, right? If that ticket costs a billion dollars and you can't afford it, can anyone here afford a billion dollars? No, no one here that I know of, okay. If you can, I'll tell you where you could invest some of that. Okay, for the kingdom, of course. Okay, but um, if you can't afford that billion dollar ticket, but what if some billionaire offered to pay it for you and then they give you the ticket? You receive the ticket, you didn't pay for it, you claim that you've received it at the entrance, but you don't have it with you. But you claim you have you, you, you got a ticket. No, no, the billionaire paid for this. I do have a ticket. I just didn't bring it. Will they let you in? No. They require a ticket. Now, the basis of you having that ticket is not your money. You didn't earn it, but it was given to you. But it's still required of you to enter. You, you see that? The, the evidence that someone paid for your ticket, the evidence that someone paid a billion dollars, and granted you access into the event, it is, it is, that's the basis of your entrance. But what is required is a ticket, a piece of paper that's worth nothing. It's not worth a billion dollars. It's a piece of paper. But it shows that, that you were really paid for. In the same way, does Jesus, is your works, you're obeying the Father internally and externally, is that the basis of your salvation? Is that the payment for your salvation? No, absolutely not. But is it required as the evidence that you are saved? Absolutely. It is required of you. It is commanded of you. And so that is what Jesus is getting at here. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter. God requires you to obey. And if you don't, you can claim you're a Christian all you want. You're not a Christian. And Jesus doesn't know you. All right, now let's, let's go to the last part here, verses 24 to 29. So don't only check your claim, check your hearing. What do I mean by check your hearing? Everyone who hears Christ's words and does them, he builds his house on the what? He's like a man who builds his house on the rock. He builds his house on the rock, and then the rain comes, and the storm comes, and the floods come, and um, the house stands, it says. But the foolish person hears the words of Jesus and doesn't act on them. He builds his house on the what? On the sand. And when the rains come, and the floods come, and the storm and winds blow... His house collapses, and that collapse is what? Is great. It's tragic. It's monumental. So check your hearing. Both, both men build a house. Both men build the same house. They just have different foundations. And what's the difference between the two men? What's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man, according to Jesus? They both hear Christ's words, right? They both hear, but the difference is, in verse 24... In verse 25 or 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Acts on them, obeys them. Contrast that with verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them is like the foolish man. So check your hearing, hearers. You're hearing the words of Jesus here in Matthew 7. Are you acting on them or are you only listening to them? The wise man builds and here's what, um, as the storms, you know what, storms in your life, 
are actually the places where your where your faith is tested and where your works are actually shown to be real or false. It's in the hard times of life. When life is easy, it's easy to say you follow Jesus. But when life gets hard and you're tempted to complain against God, doubt God, fudge on his commands, not repent when someone's clearly calling you to repentance or when the spirit convicts you, that's the test of whether you're really doing what Christ has said. So the true Christian perseveres in prizing Christ and practicing his words. The true Christian perseveres in prizing Christ and practicing his words. So we can face whatever storms come our way. Now the foolish hearer, he hears, but he doesn't do anything. So I just want to warn everyone here, because all of you have been listening for this time. I want to warn everyone here who's listening to this preaching. Hearing without heeding, hearing without obeying, is worse than not hearing at all. When you come here to hear God's word preached, you are making yourself more accountable on judgment day. And if you hear here in this place, you listen to God's words and you don't obey, there's three reasons why it's worse than not hearing at all. Number one, your accountability and judgment increases in the end. Number two, your pride increases because knowledge does what? It puffs up. And number three, your self-deception, which is kind of your pride, your self-deception increases because you know more. And the more you know without doing, the more you think you're safe. And the more you think you're safe without being safe, you're in for a rude awakening on judgment day when you stand before the judge and you say, Lord, Lord, I know all the Bible. I was listening to sermons. I studied my Bible. I know the gospel. You know, but you don't do. You don't know it like the way you ought to know it. And therefore, you're not a Christian. So Christ is calling us before tragedy strikes to trust in him. And in verses 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these things, Here's a reason why you should trust and obey Christ's words. He taught them as one who had what? Authority and not like the scribes. Jesus is the true teacher. He's the final teacher. He's the inerrant teacher. When he teaches, God is speaking. And when God is speaking, you either trust Christ as the Messiah and Lord or you don't trust Christ as the Messiah and Lord. So is Jesus your king? Yes or no? That's the question. You'll know not just by saying yes, though I hope you do. You'll know by your life. Is Jesus your king this Wednesday? Was Jesus your king on Wednesday morning when you were at work or at school? Or was Jesus your king on Thursday night in the late hours of the night when you were in bed and you couldn't sleep? You'll know Christ is your king by what you do with his words. Not just on Sunday, but every day. So check your claim. Check whether you are truly a Christian. I'll close with this story. Remember the 31 miners who were stuck in Chile about half a mile underground for 69 days. Whew, I'm claustrophobic. I just, I get chilled. I freak out. I even watched some of the videos uh, last night just to see those YouTube videos one more time. Do you remember? They're stuck half a mile underground for 69 days. 31 miners. And you know how they got out? They had to enter into this small rescue shaft which was, you know, so they, they entered into a small capsule that they dropped down after drilling a hole, and you had to enter into it and stay really constrained in this thing. And you'd basically go through a pipe, a drilled hole, for 15 minutes, 15 to 18 minutes, as they just pull you up in the capsule through solid earth, you know, as you're just going up for 18 minutes, hoping that it doesn't get stuck. Now, praise God, all 31 got out. 
But that's what, God is call, that's what Christ is calling you to here. Enter through the narrow gate. Because the narrow gate leads to what? Life. The gate is small, small, small. <laughs> the gate is small and narrow, but it is available to you. And why is the gate available to you? Why is the narrow gate available to you? Because Jesus entered the narrow gate first. But for him, it didn't lead to life. It led to his death. See, before those 31 workers can go up, they actually had to send a rescuer down in it. And in a very similar way, Christ in heaven, broad as possible, swinging his arms wherever he wants, he restricts himself to become a man, an embryo. And then to become a man, to take on human flesh, to live in this fallen world, to be, to be subject to, to the sin and to the brokenness of this world and the natural limitations. And then he's mocked and abandoned by his own people, his own disciples. He's crucified on a cross for sinners. The narrow gate for Christ led to death so that for you, the narrow gate would lead to life. The infinite God became finite man. He always did the Father's will, and yet God looked at him in a sense when he was on the cross and said, depart from me, I never knew you, and destroyed Christ on that cross for our sins. Jesus entered the narrow gate to death so that we could enter the narrow gate to life. So brothers, sisters, friends, hearers, enter through the narrow gate so that you can have life eternal. Commit today to following Jesus in everything. Stop making deals with God and holding back some of your life. Give it all to God and trust him. If you don't enter through this narrow gate by denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, you'll deceive yourself, you'll, you'll rob yourself of the truest joy, and you will face eternal judgment. But if you examine yourself and if you commit to following Christ with all that you are, you will have the Holy Spirit's assurance that you're saved. You will know and enjoy Christ daily, and you will, in the end, celebrate eternal life. So enter through the narrow gate, or else your collapse will be eternally great. Let's pray. Father, give us the resolve, the will, the desire to enter through the narrow gate. Show us that you're more valuable than all, that we might enter for your glory and for our eternal joy in life. Help us to discern your command, the golden rule, to discern false teachers, 